Well, welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. It's been a long time since we've done a standalone podcast. Um, I've been on spring break with my family. Uh, We've been really busy at the church. I've had a lot of appointments over the past week or two. We're baptizing about seven or eight people here in the coming days, coming weeks. And so I've just been a lot of ministry. I'm also teaching a class right now on um, interpreting the Bible, uh, where the students have to do an Ephesians exegetical paper, and so I've got about 20 students in that class, and so it's taken a little bit of time to to work through that. So it's good to be back on the podcast. Uh, Before we begin, I just want to give a a shout out to um, a really good friend of mine, Shane Calicut. Uh, Shane was the former worship pastor at Emmanuel. Uh, He's now in Missouri. Um, as a worship pastor, but he just launched a new podcast called The Recreated Podcast a few months ago. Um, he's written a book called Recreated, and so I just want to give a little shout out to Shane. Here's a little info about The Recreated Podcast. If you want to get that on iTunes or whatever feed that you use, um, his, he's got some different things over there. Uh, basically, his podcast exists to help people on their journey with Jesus Christ as they encounter challenges and difficult parts of God's Word. He tries to deal with a lot of the biblical difficulties and and questions that people may have. And so um, listen to Shane Calicut as he invites you to come over to the Recreated Podcast. Hello, my name is Shane Calicut, and I'm inviting you into a conversation on the Recreated Podcast. The heartbeat of the Recreated Podcast is to help people in their understanding of God's Word. See, more than ever, good conversation needs to be happening where the word is accurately applied to what we see and experience in life. So questions are the lifeblood of the Recreated Podcast. So I encourage you to subscribe, like the Recreated Podcast on Twitter, or like Recreated on Facebook, and message in your questions. You can find out more about me and the podcast at www.shaneshack.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Well, as you know, I like to interact with the traditionalist Southern Baptists, non-Calvinists, because I think that um, I kind of have a niche in this area because I've interacted with uh, Leighton Flowers and Rick Patrick and David Allen and Adam Harwood. And and I think I, I love these guys. I think they're brothers in Christ. And what I've really tried to do is to faithfully and accurately represent the traditional viewpoint, their theology. I don't want to label them as semi-Pelagians. I don't want to label them as Arminians. I think a lot of times people tend to just dismiss the traditionalist as um, something that they're not. And so I want to honestly interact with them. And the reason I do this is because I think it's very important for my listeners and people have asked me these questions and I, and I you know, interactions on Facebook, other places, um, you know, what, what is this traditional theology? It's, it's not Arminianism. It's not uh, semi-Pelagianism. It's, it's, it's a weird hybrid? What exactly is it? Um, Is it historical? Has it been around? Why do they call themselves traditionalists? And I'm going to let them define themselves because they've done a pretty good job with the Connect 316 and other things. But what I want to do is I want to just show the difference that we have regarding the role of the Word and Spirit in the gospel presentation that we give, in how we understand the conversion of a sinner, and how we understand preaching and regeneration. And so, 
the traditionalist viewpoint maintains that the gospel is an appeal for lost men to be reconciled to God. And then when given this gospel appeal, the person who hears it has the ability, the contracausal free will, to accept or reject it. And so the role of the Holy Spirit is not to bring sovereign regeneration prior to faith, making a person alive so they can repent and believe, but as one prominent uh, traditionalist, and this is from actually Leighton Flowers' website, um, and so I would consider Leighton Flowers the, um, I don't think he's the official spokesman for the traditionalist movement, but he sure is the most prolific, and he tends to be um, out there espousing the view, and this is directly his words. I don't think he would disagree with me because I'm reading a statement directly off of his website. I've listened to his YouTube and to his Soteriology 101 podcast, and I think he would affirm this. And so uh, this is what Leighton Flowers would say, and I think it, it accurately represents their viewpoint. He says, we believe our gracious God... Let me make sure I quote this correctly. We believe our gracious God is actively working in and through creation, conscience, his bride, the church, his Holy Spirit-filled followers, and his word to aid humanity in their conversion. I think that's a very important statement to interact with because the traditionalists are not denying the role of the Holy Spirit. They're not Pelagian saying that man doesn't need um, the assistance or aid of, of, of the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I don't see anything related to prevenient grace in that statement that in a traditional Arminian would affirm where God comes to his Holy Spirit and gives prevenient grace. Their view of prevenient grace or prior grace they're not semi-Pelagian. They believe that God's grace and God's Holy Spirit need to be active. It's more an assisting grace, and it's more just a grace that comes through the Word by itself. In other words, creation, conscience, the church, other believers, the Word, the gospel, the appeal is a sufficient means to assist or aid a humans to respond willingly. And I've heard them say that, you know, the role of the Holy Spirit is that he inspired the biblical writers to write the scriptures. And so the final product that we have, the inspired text, is in and of itself efficacious and powerful enough to save without some type of, and they'll use words like mystical sovereign regeneration or irresistible means or irresistible grace to bring a sinner to salvation. I don't think I'm misrepresenting their viewpoint when I use that language. And so the question that I have then is, is this a divorcing of the word and spirit that we as Calvinist or Reformed um, people would have historically understood the role of word and spirit working together? Now, the traditionalists are not going to deny that the Word and Spirit work together to bring about the conversion of a lost sinner. The question then becomes, what's the difference? How, how does that operate? So here's my question. In the traditionalist theology, what exactly is the role of the Holy Spirit in conversion? And what exactly is the role of the Word or the Gospel in conversion? Because I think, if I'm not mistaken, and, and, and they can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm accurately representing their viewpoint here, is that they their view is different from a traditional Reformed or Calvinistic view 
on the role of word and spirit. And so let's just interact with their statements. The best place to interact with the traditionalist theology is the traditional statement. They have put forth, Dr. Eric Hankins is the primary author of this. It's got over a thousand signatures. Many prominent Southern Baptists have signed it. I do not have a problem with them putting out their traditional statement. I don't have a problem with them espousing what they believe, proliferating their viewpoint. I think it's healthy. I think it's good to get it out there so people can interact. It's a public statement. They're encouraging people to sign it. I have no problem with that at all. I do have a problem with the statement itself. I do not think that it accurately represents the theology I hold to, and I think it's in conflict with the actual Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is the official doctrinal statement of Southern Baptists. But let's just look at Article 5 and Article 8, because I think Article 5 and Article 8 really articulate where the traditionalist Southern Baptist viewpoint is coming from. So Article 5, under the regeneration of a sinner, I'm reading this directly from their own um, document. And it's got affirmations and denials, which is good. I think it's important to have affirmations and denials because I think it clearly shows what they're for and what they're against. Sometimes when you only say what you're for, um, it doesn't elaborate as much upon the robust theology that you have. So one thing I do appreciate about the traditional statement is it does have what they deny. And usually in their denials is where you really see the difference between the two theologies. So here's Article 5, the regeneration of the sinner. We affirm that any person who responds to the gospel with repentance and faith is born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's a new creation in Christ and enters at the moment he believes into eternal life. Now, I don't necessarily have a problem with what they say. I have a problem with the order in which um, the order salutis. Um, they're arguing there that repentance and faith come first and then a person is born again. Now, they do affirm it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. That a person is born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. The, the, and they affirm the new creation in Christ. They, they affirm um, those things. And, and I, I don't think there's any problem with that. So they're not semi-Pelagian. They're not saying that the Holy Spirit's not active in the regeneration of the sinner. They just have a view that opposite of what we as Calvinists have. We believe regeneration precedes or comes before faith and repentance. They believe that repentance and faith come first. And then a person is born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. The issue that I have here is what exactly is the role of the Holy Spirit? What's the power of the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit actually do in that causing them to be born again? They affirm the role of the Holy Spirit. They affirm regeneration. It comes after repentance and faith. But it's not clear to me as far as what the role of the Holy Spirit is in that. Now here's their denial. We deny that any person is regenerated prior to or apart from hearing and responding to the gospel. So there you have it. They are clearly denying that regeneration precedes faith. So they are denying a clear teaching of Reformed theology of Calvinism that R.C. Sproul says is really the sine qua non or the, the one thing that is the, the essential belief of Calvinism, and that is regeneration precedes faith. So they're going to deny that. Article 8, the free will of man. 
We affirm that God, as an expression of his sovereignty, endows each person with actual free will, the ability to choose between two options, which must be exercised in accepting and rejecting God's gracious call to salvation by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Okay, so they are affirming contracausal free will that must be exercised, and it's in response to God's gracious call to salvation. So they, they affirm an external call. It's a gracious call. It's not an efficacious or effectual call. We'll see that in just a moment. And it's by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Okay, so they're putting the Holy Spirit language in there. They're, they're talking about how it has to be through the gospel. Again, they're using terminology that we would agree with. It's not semi-Pelagianism where it's just man makes the first step to God without any divine assistance or any type of grace. Um, they're, they're clear to put, make it a gracious call. Uh, they're, they're clear to put that it's the Holy Spirit. It's clear it's through the gospel. But again, the clarity. Okay, what is the, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in relation to the gospel? Is it just a general call that people are able to accept or reject? And, and I think that's what they believe because in their denial, they say this, we deny that the decision of faith is an act of God rather than response of a person. Okay, we would probably deny that too because we believe that the response is actually the person's response, um, not God believing for the sinner, but the Holy Spirit granting the gift of faith. Uh, they go on to say, we deny that there is an effectual call for certain people that's different from a general call to any person who hears and understands the gospel. Okay, so they have clearly delineated themselves from historic Calvinistic theology that they deny an effectual call. So it's very clear that they've laid their cards out on the table. There is no effectual call that the Holy Spirit does internally to call the elect unto salvation. There is no sovereign regeneration prior to conversion. You repent and believe using your free will through the calling of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, and then you are regenerated. These are statements that they're clearly stating where they stand. The problem I have with it is, it's not expanded enough to tell me what is the role of the Holy Spirit then. What, what does the Holy Spirit actually do? If the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates, and the Holy Spirit is the one who calls and woos and convicts, is it just basically the, the bare gospel being presented is enough? What is the role of word and spirit? I think that's what's missing in the traditional statement, that the historic confessions have done a very good job of showing the role of word and spirit working together to bring about the salvation of sinners. Now let's just compare their statements with the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 because they are in conflict with the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is very, very interesting. Because the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is a pretty innocuous, middle-of-the-road, non-offensive, politically correct document that makes for a big tent. And I think that's the purpose of it. Um, the, the Southern Baptist Convention is a big tent. We have Calvinists, we have Arminians, we have traditionalists, um, we have dispensationalists, we have all-millennial, we have covenant theologians, um, we, we have all different types of of people that can hold together under this big umbrella of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is a pretty generic statement. Um, it's a good statement that binds the denomination together. As far as a local church having that doctrinal statement, um, it's probably not robust or um, thorough enough. But the Baptist Faith and Message is our official doctrinal statement, if you claim to be a Southern Baptist. And the, here's what the Baptist Faith and Message says. 
2000. Regeneration, or the new birth, is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 teaches regeneration is prior to faith and repentance. It says it right there in that sentence. It is a change of heart. Now, one of the things that the traditional statement doesn't really say about regeneration, it doesn't say anything about a change of heart. It does say he's a new creation in Christ. They do affirm that. But the Baptist faith and message is a little bit more comprehensive. It's a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit changes your heart. How does he do that? He changes the heart through conviction of sin. Okay, that comes first. To which... The sinner responds in repentance and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the Baptist faith and message, which comes first? Repentance and faith or change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin and regeneration? In the Baptist faith and message, regeneration comes first. The Holy Spirit regenerates through conviction of sin. He changes the heart. And what happens? When that happens, the sinner responds in repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, regeneration affects the new heart. Regeneration comes through conviction of sins. Regeneration causes a person to become a new creation in Christ. And once that happens, the result, the response is, they repent and believe. You don't repent and believe in order to be regenerated. You repent and believe as a response to already being regenerated. That's what the Baptist faith and message teaches. Now, you can argue that that's not your theological view, and you can say that that's not what I believe. I believe more of the traditional statement, but the statement that is in the Baptist faith and message, clearly according to the grammar, clearly according to the statement, there's no ambiguity that regeneration precedes faith. Now, let's get to a better, I think, doctrinal statement, confession of faith, that clearly lays forth the role of word and spirit. And that is the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. This is the confession that I hold to. And so, let's look at this and see what they say about effectual calling, what it says about regeneration. Look at the language Look at the precision of language. Look at the robust explanation. Look at how they unpack the role of word and spirit working together. And so what I'm doing is, what I'm showing you here is, the traditional statement is very minimalistic. Then you move to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is more robust and more in line with what we would believe. And then you move to the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, where it's very expansive and it clearly articulates the view. So let's, in chapter 10 of effectual calling in the Second London Baptist Confession, here's what it says. Those whom God hath predestined unto life, he's pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit... Out of that state of sin and death, in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Okay, how does, how does he do that? It goes on to explain. Enlightening their minds, spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh. Renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. I really appreciate this statement. 
because it ties in sovereign election to effectual calling. Those whom God hath predestined to life, in his appointed time, he's going to effectually call. How is he going to do that? By his word and spirit. So the doctrinal statement of the, of the London Confession links word and spirit together, and it talks about, takes them out of a state of death and sin. And so it goes on to explain how the Holy Spirit does that through word and spirit. What, is, what happens? What, what actually happens in the regeneration or the effectual calling of a sinner? Well, enlightening their minds to spiritually and savingly understand the things of God. Okay, that's, that's an important thing. You have to be able to understand the truths of the gospel. When the gospel is presented, your mind needs to be enlightened. You need to spiritually be able to understand that. The word and spirit work together to do that. What else happens? Your heart's taken away, your stony heart. You're given a new heart of flesh. That comes directly from um, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, where God talks about taking out a heart of stone, giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills. That's very, very important. Why does the will need to be renewed? Because the will is in bondage. The will is unable. You are totally unable to come to faith in Christ on your own. No one can come to the Father except or no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. So the will has to be renewed. It has to be made alive. And by his almighty power, determining to them that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus. Effectually drawing them, which means that if it's effectual drawing, it's going to happen. It's going to be efficacious. The elect will most infallibly come, and they're going to come freely. Why are they going to become freely? Because they're being made willing to come by grace. So it assumes that they're not willing to come before because of total depravity and total inability. The effectual call, the sovereign regeneration, the working of word and spirit in the life of the elect will most definitely and infallibly bring them to saving faith in Christ through sovereign grace. Now, paragraph two, this effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature, being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. And that's another important statement. There's nothing within the sinner that makes him have the ability to respond or to come to Christ because he's holy and passively dead in sin and trespasses. But when you're quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, when you're regenerated, you are enabled to answer the call. You are enabled to embrace Christ. And that power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that comes in sovereign regeneration. So there's an expansive definition of the role of word and spirit in the Second London Baptist Confession. It's not just God's given conscience and God's given his word and God's given the church to aid or assist man to use their free will to come. It is man is totally dead. He's unable to come. He has a will that is enslaved. He has a heart that is stoned. And that the word and spirit work together through sovereign power, resurrection power, to enable the lost sinner to come to faith by sovereign regeneration. Okay? So you see the confessions of faith clearly delineating this issue. 
Now, I just want to address an issue that we hear a lot from the traditionalists, and that is they will argue that the, the gospel is an appeal to be reconciled to God. And once a sinner hears that appeal to be reconciled to God, they can contracausally be able to make the decision to respond to that appeal. Now, that comes from 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I have no disagreement with them that the gospel call is an appeal, and it's an appeal to be reconciled to God, and that God himself is making the appeal. I don't disagree with them on that. I think Paul's very clear. But there is some scholarly argument on who the audience is that needs to be reconciled. You go and you look at scholarly commentaries or you look at doctoral dissertations, which I have done this past week, on this passage of Scripture, and you realize that there is some scholarly argument on who needs to be reconciled. Basically, there's three camps. There's three uh, groups given by scholars to understand who Paul is talking about. Who needs to be reconciled? Um, the first group, they'd say, is that it's unbelievers at least associated with the Corinthian church. That it's specific unbelievers in the Corinthian church because Paul is immediately writing to the church in Corinth and he's addressing outsiders or unbelievers who are associated with the church that need to be reconciled to God and that it's specific just to that particular audience. That's one view. The second view is that it's Corinthian believers, not non-believers, not lost people, but believers who were antagonistic toward Paul, that didn't accept Paul's apostolic authority, that were calling factions in the, causing factions in the church, that they were not getting along, and that they needed to be, in a sense, um, brought back to repentance or brought back to reconciliation with Paul and with God because of their bad attitude, because of their factions, and that this is not an evangelistic appeal to lost people, but it's to the believers in Corinth to be reconciled back to God because of their unrepentant behavior and their childish behavior. The third view is it's any evangelistic audience that Paul might address. So this applies to us when you go out to any lost person in any evangelistic context, you, uh, you uh, appeal to, to them to be reconciled to Christ. You're making your appeal. Um, the New American Commentary, which is the actual Southern Baptist Commentary, argues that it is Corinthian believers. The the author of this Southern Baptist commentary says this, while this is indeed the universal missionary entreaty of the church to the world, in this context it is addressed to the Corinthian Christians who are alienated from Paul and highlights the continual claim of the new way of living in Christ. So he argues that it's Christians. Philip Hughes, in his New International Commentary of the New Testament, argues against that. It says, no, this is an evangelistic appeal, um, and it's not just limited to those um, within the church that were antagonistic to Paul. So there's a dispute in scholarship, which I wanted to show you that, because even scholars aren't um, aligned as far as who the author or who the audience is that needs to be reconciled. But let's just assume, and I probably take the, the, the view that it's, it's, it could be both. Um, I think that in the immediate context, it, it probably has a dual meaning. It could be that those that um, Paul is writing to needed to be reconciled back, but I also think it has an application to an evangelistic appeal as well. And so let's just say it is an evangelistic appeal to be reconciled um, and, and, and that that's what it is to unbelievers. So the question I have then, okay, 
I agree with you, traditionalists. The gospel is a message, is an appeal for lost people to be reconciled to God. But is that all that it is? And is there the work of the Holy Spirit with that appeal to bring about conversion? So I'm arguing, is there more to it than just that? Is the gospel merely an appeal? You need to be reconciled to God. And once you hear the appeal, the appeal in and of itself is sufficient enough for you to have the contracausal free will to accept the appeal or to reject the appeal and thus be saved. In other words, according to your own words, is the appeal an aid to assist you in your conversion? Is that all that it is? Or is the role of the Holy Spirit acting in that appeal? And if the Holy Spirit's acting in that appeal, then what does the Holy Spirit actually do in that appeal? Let's just look again at Article 8 of the traditional statement, Free Will of Man. We affirm that God, as an expression of His sovereignty, endows each person with actual free will, the ability to choose between two options which must be exercised in accepting or rejecting God's gracious call to salvation by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. We deny that this decision of faith is an act of God rather than a responsible person. We deny there is an effectual call for certain people that's different from a general call to any person who hears and understands the gospel. Okay, so the question then becomes... If the gospel call is an appeal to be reconciled to God, and I agree that it is, is that all it is? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in that appeal? And so what I want to do now, as we've looked at this historical documents, if we've looked at the argument, I want to look at three examples from the Bible on how the Word and Spirit act in unison together to bring about conversion. It's not just the appeal of the word without the spirit. It's word and spirit. And exactly what does the spirit do in bringing about the conversion of a lost person? So we're going to go to the Old Testament first. We're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. Now, there are three primary ways to interpret this account, and I think all three are accurate. One, in the immediate context, is a picture of restored Israel after exile in Babylon. That's probably the immediate application of Ezekiel 37, is this prophecy of Israel being restored to the promised land after Babylonian exile. It's a metaphor for them being dead um, in exile because of their disobedience, and God's going to make them alive and bring them back. Another view that people have is that it's an end times view of the final resurrection of the last trumpet. But I think that also you can look at it as how it relates to sovereign regeneration through the preached word of God, word and spirit. So I'm just going to read verses 1 through 14 of Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. The hand of the Lord was upon me, this is Ezekiel speaking, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones and he led me among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Mm. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. 
And I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken it, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now obviously this is a metaphor, this is a vision. We've got to understand the genre here of apocalyptic language in the Old Testament. Again, it's an immediate context of Israel being restored to the land. But I do think there are some applications that we see that corroborate with the rest of the scripture. And I think that, number one, it shows you the condition of lost humanity. Uh, The bones represent lost people. It's an image of dead, dry bones that are scattered on the valley floor. They're not even intact skeletons. They're, they're bone dry. They're, they're scattered. There's no vitality. There's no life. There's no muscle. There's no sinew. Um, they've been there a while to paint a very serious picture of the deadness uh, of, of these bones. And, and we know what the Bible says. Obviously, Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating God. I mean, we don't have to spend a lot of time on total depravity and inability. We've done that on other podcasts, but the dead, dry bones is representative of the, the nature of humans spiritually without life. And then God asks a very interesting question to Ezekiel. What does he say there? In verse 3, and he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? That's a strange question. Can these bones live? Now, obviously, uh, from a human perspective, uh, Ezekiel's answers, he doesn't say yes or no. He says, only you know God, but we know they're, they're dead, they're dry, they're scattered. The obvious question is, no, they can't live. They're, they've been rotting there, they're dead, they're, they're bone dry, they're scattered, they're not even together. But what do you mean, can these bones live? Obviously, they can't. But notice what God calls Ezekiel to do. He tells Ezekiel in verse 4, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. In other words, Ezekiel, I want you to begin to preach the word of the Lord, to declare, to verbally announce, to preach, to proclaim, and tell these bones to hear the word of the Lord. Now, this does not make any sense because bones don't have ears to hear. They are dead. 
How in the world are they going to respond to the preached word when they are dead? And it's interesting because Ezekiel's not encouraged to tell them to, um, he doesn't say, hey, uh, bones, why don't you kind of help yourself, get yourself out of leper, uh, your lethargy. Um, you know, you've got it within you to make yourself alive. Uh, you're just a little sick. Um, here's a little bit of medicine. What, what has he done? God says they need to hear the word of the Lord preached. That's why Paul says in Romans 10, 14 through 17, but how are they to call on him whom they not believe? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? It's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So how does faith come? How does God create faith? Through the hearing of the word of Christ. Faith is created in the actual preached word. When God's people hear the word of the Lord preached, God creates the faith for them to be able to respond to the preached word. And God promises to breathe in them. God promises, he says, once you begin to preach, once you begin to prophesy, I'll cause breath to enter them. I'm going to bring them to life. I'm going to put sinews on them. They're going to stand and they're going to live. Now, at this point, Ezekiel could have said, you know what, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. To go out to a valley of dry bones and to begin to preach to dead dry bones, there's no way they're going to hear. There's no way they're going to come together. But this is a prophet of the Lord, and God has directly told him to do this, and so Ezekiel obeys. What does he do in verse 7? So I prophesied as I commanded. And what happens? He preaches. And God does something spectacular. When he preaches, God begins to put flesh put breath and then God says to prophesy to the breath to come and then the breath comes in other words the spirit of God comes and actually begins to cause these bones to come alive they lived and so what you see here is that it wasn't just the word of God alone that gave the dead dry bones enough information for them to be able to make the free will choice to believe. Preaching in and of itself didn't accomplish anything unless there was the attending Spirit of God with the Word of God to actually effectually bring about the new life. You see, they didn't come to life until the breath came into them. So it's word and spirit working together. It's the word of God proclaimed. It's the appeal, if you will, to be reconciled. It's the command to repent and believe. It's the announcement of the gospel. But that in and of itself is the outward call. That's not enough. There has to be the special, effectual, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to actually bring life blow life into the dead dry bones to cause them to live. That's why Jesus can say in John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus about the new birth, in John 3, 7 through 8, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. In other words, I think Jesus is taking an analogy here from Ezekiel chapter 37 
to <clears throat> allude to the, the being born again. In other words, when the Holy Spirit comes and blows and enters into a dead sinner and causes them to come alive, they are born again. How does this happen? Through the preaching of the Word. Word and Spirit working together to sovereignly regenerate and bring to life dead, dry, spiritually incapable people who cannot respond without the Spirit. Now, in that Valley of Dry Bones, it wasn't just preaching alone. Ezekiel could have preached and preached and preached and preached, and the bones would have never lived, unless the Spirit came alongside the preaching and caused the regeneration, caused the being made alive. Okay, that's an Old Testament picture of that. Let's go to the New Testament, and let's look at the testimony of Paul in two places. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to give a few observations. Paul's giving a little bit of a biography here to the Corinthians about how he first came to them. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Do you see the connection there? Paul came proclaiming, preaching. What did he preach? The testimony of God. Now, this is not in the original language where somebody gives a personal testimony about what God has done in his life. It wasn't like Paul came in and said, hey, I'm preaching a testimony of what God's done in my life. No, the, 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 the little preposition there, really the testimony of God is this is God's testimony. This is God's word. This is God's message that Paul came preaching. And the, the content of the message is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel, if you will, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Paul comes preaching the testimony of God, the gospel, and he doesn't use lofty speech or wisdom. It doesn't mean that Paul was rambling over his words or Paul didn't use good argumentation or Paul wasn't persuasive or Paul was a terrible public speaker. That's not what he's talking about. It just means he's not using the, um, the, uh, the, the, the uh, strategies or eloquence or the trappings of the philosophers of the day, uh, manipulative Tactics. He wasn't being manipulative or smooth-talking or, or trying to wow them simply with the way he spoke. He says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. So in other words, Paul says, Listen, I came and I proclaimed the gospel to you. And you could have just accepted that as the gospel message, as information, as the appeal to be reconciled, but there's something else that came with it. Yes, it was the proclamation of the testimony of God, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel, but it came in a demonstration of spirit and of power. In other words, the Holy Spirit powerfully attended the preaching of that word, and thus you were saved. You were converted. The church was birthed through the preaching of the Word and Spirit working together to bring about the conversion of, of sinners. 
And later on in Paul, in First Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul makes this you know, argument again about word and spirit. And he ties it to sovereign election as well. And so you kind of see where these confessions of faith get the idea of word and spirit working together to bring about the sovereign regeneration of the elect. First Thessalonians 1, 2 through 5. Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Okay, there's sovereign election. He has chosen you. God has chosen you. God has predestined you. You are elected. How do you know you're elect? How do you know you were chosen? How do you know that you were one that has been chosen by God? Verse 5, because. Okay, because. Here's the reason why we know God's chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word. It wasn't just the bare gospel. It, just, it wasn't just the words. It wasn't just an appeal that came that was sufficient by itself, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Do you see it there? It's not just word alone, the gospel alone. It didn't just come to you in words. I didn't just come to you and give the appeal. But there was the effectual working of the Holy Spirit and power and full conviction that actually came to bear upon you because you were the elect and God sovereignly regenerated you through the word and spirit so that you would believe and thus prove that you were among the elect. It's the gospel shared with words. Later on in the book, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Again, he says, it's not just the bare word, the appeal, the gospel just given to you by itself, but there's the work of God in you through that, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus can say in John six sixty three, it's the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Notice the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. I speak, Jesus says, I speak to you words. And those words are in and of themselves not enough. The Spirit has to give you life. So there has to be word and spirit. Paul says, I came to you. I preached the gospel. I preached the word to you. I gave you the word. And it came to you not just as the word, but it came to you in power and spirit and full conviction. Word and spirit. The effectual working of the Holy Spirit attending the word of God preached to the elect to effectually bring them all the way to faith through sovereign regeneration. That's why Jesus again says, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. I speak to you words, but the spirit has to give life through those words. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So you have to be made alive through the preaching of word and spirit. Now, those are three examples. You've got Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones where you see word and spirit. 
You've got Paul in Corinth. He comes and he says, I, I'm giving to you the proclamation of the gospel and the demonstration of the Spirit. In Thessalonians, he says, I'm coming to you with the word, but not just the word, but in the Spirit, thus proving that you are among the elect because you received it. Word and Spirit, word and Spirit, word and Spirit. Okay, do we see an example of this actually happening in real time when the gospel's preached in the Bible? Probably the best example you can go to is Acts 16, 14, where you see Lydia, who was a seller of, of purple goods from the city of Thyatira. Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now notice, there's two things there. The things that Paul said and the Lord opening her heart. Now, if you just take the traditionalist view, where it's the word comes and it's enough to aid a person to make a contracausal free will choice, it would have just said, there was a woman from Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. She paid attention to what Paul said when the word of God came to her, because she had the ability to pay attention. That's not what the text says. The Lord opened her heart first, in order for her to pay attention to the word. So again, you see word and spirit. Paul is preaching the word. But there's a demonstration of spirit and power in the sense that the Lord is opening her heart. What's, what's, the, what's the opening of the heart? Well, it's the valley of dry bones. Lydia is a dead, dry, sinful woman. And the Holy Spirit is giving her life. The Holy Spirit's opening her heart. The Holy Spirit's replacing her heart of stone with the heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit's making her alive. The Holy Spirit is sovereignly regenerating her so that she can understand and receive and believe the words of Paul. Paul's words among themselves to her were not enough. The gospel appeal was not enough unless the Lord accompanied that by opening her heart. You see, word and spirit, sovereign regeneration, really has been what the church has affirmed for centuries. Now, the traditionalists would affirm this. We believe, just like you, Sean, word and spirit. But the role of the Holy Spirit is different. We believe the Holy Spirit's role was to inspire the scriptures, so that the gospel itself, when given, is enough to aid or elicit a response. There's a wooing, there's a convicting, but there is no sovereign regeneration that precedes faith. The Calvinist view, my view, says that God has ordained a beautiful marriage between word and spirit, so that when the word is preached, that alone is not enough but that the Holy Spirit must effectually call and work and regenerate the elect so that they infallibly come to faith in Christ. Calvin captures this in his Romans commentary. He says, There's no benefit in preaching except when God shines in us by the light of his Spirit, and thus the inward calling, which alone is efficacious and peculiar to the elect, is distinguished from the outward voice of men. Calvin's making a distinction between the outward call of the gospel that goes to all people and the effectual, or he calls peculiar, inward call that goes to the effect, or to the elect. And so the traditionalists, again, deny an effectual call, an outward call, an inward call, the distinction. Um, I think the greatest quote comes from Charles Spurgeon on this. 
This is uh, quoted by John Stott in his preaching book, Between Two Worlds, which, again, I think is one of the best preaching books. But listen to um, this quote from Spurgeon. I think this captures everything. If I could just distill it down into an awesome quote, it's got to be Spurgeon. So listen to what Spurgeon says. The gospel is preached in the ears of all men. It only comes with power to some. The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher, otherwise men would be converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning, otherwise it could consist of the wisdom of men. We might preach till our tongues rotted, till we should exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless there were mysterious power going with it. The Holy Ghost changing the will of man. Oh, sirs, we might as well preach to stone walls as to preach to humanity unless the Holy Ghost be with the word to give it power to convert the soul. I can't say it any better than that. I can't say it any better than that. Charles Spurgeon has given us an excellent quote here of word and spirit working together to bring about the conversion of the soul. And listen to what Spurgeon says. It's like preaching to a stone wall. You, you, could, you could preach until your tongue rots, until your tongue falls out, until you don't have any more breath. You can preach and preach and preach and preach and preach the bare word. You can preach the appeal. You can tell men to come. You can tell men to, to receive Christ. You can do it and do it and do it. But he's saying that's not enough. The bare appeal, the bare word is not enough unless the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, gives that word power to convert the soul. And so I think it's important to see these distinctions between what the traditionalist view is and what the Calvinistic view is. I think it's important to see these delineations, to see these differences, to see the points of contention, as they often say, because I don't want us talking past each other. And I hope that I've accurately reflected their view. If I've not accurately reflected their view, then I need to be corrected. And maybe Leighton Flowers, if he listens to this, can correct me or somebody else. And so I just want to give, I, I want to let my traditionalist brothers in the Southern Baptist Convention know that I respect what you're trying to do. And I, I may be one of the few voices out there that's trying to accurately interact with you because I hear your frustrations. Nobody's representing us. Uh, they're all calling us Pelagians, semi-Pelagianists, um, Arminians. Nobody out there wants to accurately reflect our view. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I want to be intellectually and academically honest with your view and accurately represent it so that I can clarify your view. I can tell your view back to you and, and, and hopefully you would agree with me say, yes, that's our view. And then I can expose how we as Calvinists differ from your view and give biblical reasons why we differ from your view and interact with your statements of faith, with our statements of faith, to show how this all works together. And it really, again, it affects the big things in life related to the gospel. It affects how you do evangelism. It affects your understanding of lost humanity. It affects your understanding of regeneration. And again, theology affects methodology. And so, depending upon your theology, it'll affect your methodology. How do you do evangelism? What um, types of things do you employ with your evangelism? Do you pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to attend 
the preaching of the word. And I wonder, based upon the statements of the traditionalists, how they pray when they preach and how they pray before they do evangelism. Because as a Calvinist, here's how I pray. Lord, I'm going to preach the gospel this morning. Lord, I'm going to open your text and I'm going to declare your word. And I know that nothing's going to happen of eternal significance unless you come with your sovereign Holy Spirit in the attending of, of that word to come alongside that word and actually effectually bring about sovereign regeneration in lost, dead souls that are under the hearing of my word. So Spirit, I need your help to come I need you to come. You've got to convert these lost souls. You've got to bring sovereign regeneration. You've got to raise them to life because me preaching in and of myself, I'm not going to accomplish that. So would you please come? I need word and spirit. That's the way that we would pray as Calvinists. I'm not sure how the traditionalists would pray. I'm not going to assume to attempt to say how they would pray. They can answer that question themselves. That's how we pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of his word with the Holy Spirit bringing the effectual call inwardly into the heart of the elect to infallibly bring them to faith so that their deadness can be overcome and they will receive Christ. That regeneration precedes faith and repentance and if anybody's going to come to faith, it's going to be because God has sovereignly brought them to life. Like he did Lydia. He opened her heart so that she would understand the words of Paul. Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Um, I'm starting a new Wednesday night teaching on the book of Ruth. So hopefully you've listened to some of those up on the um, on iTunes or the website or however you get this feed. Uh, it's one of my favorite Old Testament books. I'm still preaching through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings, so you'll be able to hear those as well. And then these also podcasts that when I have time to come in and do that like I've done today. So would God bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. And-